In your program this morning is this uh, sermon notes form. It's there every week. On the back is that, in the corner, is this little question, who is your one? If you're new to LifePoint, you may have wondered, what's the, what's really that all about? Um, and sometimes it says, pray for your one. Sometimes it says, remember to share Christ with your one. Um, this time we're asking you the question, who is your one? And, and uh, what is that? Well, the one is a person that you are praying for, uh, and, and, and cultivating a relationship with so that they might have the opportunity to come to know Jesus. And sometimes we, uh, we can get overwhelmed with the sheer number of people and we hear challenges to reach our communities for Christ or reach our neighborhoods or even to work, reach our workplaces or our schools. And usually that involves a large number of people. And, and so we want to just simplify that and say, who's your one? Who is, who is one person in your life that you are uh, thinking about, praying for, that you've singled out and you're asking God to work in their lives, to draw them to himself? It's not really dependent on you, but uh, you participate with God in that process, praying for and seeking uh, their salvation. And so that's what that's about. I want to encourage you to think about who that is in your life and to, to begin praying for them. A couple of weeks ago, we began a new series through the Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, said this a couple of times because it's cute, and I'll say it again. If you thought it was about romance, sorry, it's Romans, and uh, you need to go back to school and learn to read. You know, the... Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at who Paul was, Paul the Apostle, and uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, we spent the whole message on that. Who is Paul? And last week, we looked at uh, Paul's introduction to the gospel that centers, he says, on God's Son, Jesus Christ. And if you didn't hear those messages, I'd encourage you to go online uh, to our website at mylpclacy.com. You can uh, listen there to those messages, and uh, all of our messages are always there, and sometimes Evan even edits out my bad jokes. So there you go. You know, the, the New Testament, in a variety of ways, repeatedly asserts the expectation in the authentic Christian life that each of us will be growing up to maturity, evidenced in large part by an, inc- an increasing capacity to exercise spiritual influence in the lives of others, uh, whether it's our spouses or our families or um, our communities or the world at large, spiritual influence. And in fact, where that spiritual maturity is not being evidenced, where that spiritual influence is not emerging, there's a reason for serious concern. Uh, in the world of uh, infant care, when a, an infant fails to thrive, uh, m- the medical community goes into action. Uh, when over a period of time a Christ follower fails to thrive, fails to mature, when he or she remains in spiritual infancy or, or spiritual childhood, always receiving but, but never growing up to maturity, alarm bells ought to be ringing in the church. Alarm bells ought to be going off in the hearts and the minds of, of other believers in the church who know them and love them and are in relationship with them. Nowhere is that expressed with such sparkling clarity as in Hebrews chapter 5, where the writer says to his readers, 
you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now, I'm not sure that the writer of Hebrews expected that everyone would become teachers in the sense that we think of it, of teaching a Sunday school class or, or being a preacher kind of teacher, those kinds of more uh, formal roles. Here's what I think he was saying, that, that you ought to be growing up to the place over, over a reasonable period of time, you ought to have matured to the place in your Christian life that you're able to give back that you are able to exert spiritual influence in the lives of others that helps them grow up to maturity. That will emerge in your life with increasing clarity, increasing power, increasing impact. It may start very small. It usually does. But it'll grow from there. You ought to be, over a period of time, a reasonable period of time, growing up to maturity, indicated by the fact that you are able to exercise and you are exercising spiritual influence in the lives of others. The writer of Hebrews here says, that's not true of you, that, that whoever it is he's writing to, he says of them, you, you have need of someone to teach you again the basic principles and and translate that culturally it's literally the concept is the abcs you need to go back to kindergarten and first grade in your spiritual life you need milk not solid food well our theme this morning is the heart of a spiritual leader and if you were at men's retreat this weekend, this is, uh, I think it's really kind of coincidental that, that these messages are dovetailing. Yesterday at men's retreat, our, 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 uh, speaker, Jan Hedinga, asked the question, what would an ideal leader look like? And he said three things that an ideal leader cares about those he or she leads. He, he or she is trustworthy and he or she is self-sacrificing. And this morning we're going to examine five qualities of spiritual leadership that are demonstrated in the heart of the Apostle Paul and expressed in his words to the church in Rome in verses 8 to 15 of chapter 1. And as we do that, I want to encourage you this morning to consider whether you are growing up, whether these qualities are being cultivated, whether they're taking shape, whether they're being expressed through your own life. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not the, the last answer on spiritual leadership. But, but Paul here in these verses expresses five characteristics of, of a true spiritual leader. And uh, let's examine the, to get them together. Would you stand with me and let's read our scripture this morning. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. 
For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is God's word. You may be seated. These five principles of spiritual leadership, these five characteristics of the heart of a spiritual leader are expressed in this passage with five I statements, five statements that begin with the word I. And he he begins at verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because, there's a reason, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Here's what I want you to see, that a spiritual leader affirms and celebrates the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the people that he or she leads. There are leaders who affirm and celebrate the work of the Holy Spirit in their own lives, through their own lives. The focus of a true spiritual leader, Paul would say, is that he is focused on affirming, celebrating what God is doing in the lives of others. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Thankfulness for God's work in and through the lives of the people and the churches he served was a prominent theme of Paul's leadership. For example, and representative of a much larger picture, here here are three places where Paul expresses this, Colossians 1, 3 through 5, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for what we hear he's doing in you and through you. To the church at Thessalonica, he wrote, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. To Timothy, he wrote, I thank God whom I serve as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. See, the cause for, for Paul's ex- expression of thankfulness for the Roman believers was that their faith was being proclaimed in all the world. 
He was able to say whatever it was that happened when the church was planted there in Rome, and Paul was not a part of that. He's never been there. Whatever it was that happened really took, and people are hearing all over the world about you. Historians of the time inform us that in AD 49, which is eight to ten years prior to Paul writing this letter, the the Roman emperor Claudius expelled a large number of Jews from Rome, mistakenly thinking that they were all followers of this person named Crestus, which sounds like toothpaste, but it's it's a, a variant on the on the name Christ, a variant spelling of Christ, Crestus. Apparently, the testimony of those Jews who had become followers of Jesus in the in the Jewish community in Rome had earned the wrath of the rest of the Jewish community, and the turmoil, the disruption that ensued, was perceived by the Romans as a threat to the peace of the entire city of Rome. It must have been quite a disruption. So it's quite clear that. The Christ followers in Rome had a powerful, compelling testimony in the city. But as they were expelled from the city, they preached the gospel wherever they went. And so that the the awareness of the authenticity, the reality of Christian faith in the church in Rome had become known around the world. As I mentioned last week, the believers in Rome lived in the lion's den, literally as well as figuratively. And it was there that their faith had taken root and grown in the midst of that conflict, in the midst of persecution. You know, some churches are famous because of their pastors. Uh, Some are are famous because of the sheer architecture of the building in which they meet or their size or their wealth. The church in Rome was famous for the thing that we ought to aspire to as a church, that they were famous for their faith. The authenticity, the reality, the power of their faith in Christ. They were a community of transformed, authentic Christ followers through whom the Lord Jesus manifested his life and character, and that reputation just radiated outward to the whole world. You know, we often think about conflict and persecution coming to the church here in the United States. It's very present around the world today. It hasn't arrived here in its fullness yet, but we see it coming, don't we? Sometimes we wonder, well, well, will the church survive? And sometimes you hear people, um, you know, wringing their hands and saying, well, the church is in its final days. The church is finally going to die. And that, that will never happen. It will never happen. Because Christianity took root in a place of opposition. It took place in, a, in an environment of persecution. And against all odds, the gospel took root and grew and expanded, and it's always been true. Even you re- go back to the to the, the the Jews, the Israelites in Egypt, and it said of them that the more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied and spread. That's just axiomatic in the spiritual life. God's people, when they come under persecution, have this uh, you know nasty habit of multiplying and spreading uh, to the chagrin of those who oppose us. A thankful heart is essential to true spiritual 
leadership. And there's a warning here, I think. And it's first of all, if you and I are attempting to serve God, but we are not cultivating, we're failing to cultivate a heart of gratitude for his grace, first of all, in our own lives, what he's done in us and for us, we're going to lose our joy, we're going to burn out, we're going to drop out. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you have served for less than sterling motives, and you've lost sight of why you're doing it. You've lost sight of the fact that the, that the Spirit of God wants to o- overflow from your life into the lives of others. And you've simply gotten tired and you've become resentful and you've dropped out. See, if the goal of our service is simply to, to fill a slot out of some sense of should, some sense of obligation, if you're if your motivation is simply to help out rather than to really invest yourself, rather than giving attention to and giving thanks for the work of the Holy Spirit that he wants to do, is doing, has done, through us, in the lives of those we serve, whoever they may be, we, are, we will lack endurance. We'll just get tired. We'll just get resentful. And then we'll drop out. And that's why spiritual growth has to accompany spiritual leadership. When an immature believer is serving in the church, um, lacking spiritual strength, lacking spiritual understanding, lacking spiritual perspective, he or she will almost always become more resentful than thankful. An unthankful heart is a Selfish, self-absorbed, self-centered heart. And Paul had a thankful heart because in spite of all of the opposition he faced, all of, all that he went through for the sake of the gospel, he continually focused on what the transforming work that God had done in his own life. And then what God was doing in the the lives of faithful believers who, because of his influence, and, and sometimes just in spite of his influence, far beyond his influence, were advancing the gospel of the kingdom throughout the world. So if you aspire to spiritual leadership this morning, you're first going to have to cultivate your own spiritual growth, and then secondly, you'll need to cultivate the discipline of thankfulness, looking for and giving thanks to God for the work of His Spirit in and through the lives of those that you lead. Secondly, Paul says in verses 9 and 10, I mention you always in my prayers. I mention you always in my prayers. Fuller form, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So here's the principle that a spiritual leader prays unceasingly for the people. An authentic spiritual leader prays unceasingly for the people. And again, we can see this in the life of Paul and his relationship to the churches he served. To the church at Ephesus, he said, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. To the church at Philippi, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, 
for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now to the church at Colossae. He said, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. To the church at Thessalonica, in his first letter, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Second Thessalonians 1, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So why do spiritual leaders pray so much? First, it's because the mature spiritual leader knows that the power for ministry and mission is the power of God. It's not his or her own power. It doesn't reside in the leader's talent, in the leader's giftedness, in the leader's skill. The kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. And unless God works through us, even in spite of us, beyond us, in the lives of others, None of our human efforts will amount to anything of any value to the kingdom of God. Prayerlessness is not a mark of spiritual maturity. Second, because that's true, a genuine spiritual leader, a genuine spiritual influencer, if you will, will be a man or woman devoted to prayer, whether they're on their knees or whether they're just sending up arrow prayers on the move. Leaders maintain an ongoing, dependent cultivation of a conversation with God on behalf of those they serve. And that's why Paul wrote to these Roman believers, be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. The only reason, the only way that we really develop that constancy is when we come face to face with our desperation for the Spirit of God to work through us. And we get flat on our face before the Lord and say, Lord, if you don't do this, if you don't show up, all of it is lost. All of it is a waste of time and effort. In verse 11, Paul writes, I long to see you. I long to see you. Again, in larger form, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I'm, I'm struck, first of all, here by the thought that Paul didn't even know these Roman believers. And He'd never met them, and yet he longed to see them. He loved them. A spiritual leader has a deep affection for the people that he or she leads and influences. And it's, it's axiomatic that when we begin to pray for people, even people we don't know, people we may not have met, people we may never meet, and maybe it's that child that's on the other end of your Operation Christmas Child box. 
and you pray over that box and you say, Lord Jesus, would you use the things that are in this box that seem by themselves so insignificant, would you use this as a vehicle to open a heart to the gospel? And I, I guarantee you that as you pray that prayer, your heart will go out to that child whom you may never meet, whose name you may never know. As you pray for someone, you can't help but begin to love them. A spiritual leader has a deep affection for the people. Paul reflected the affection of a spiritual leader for those that he leads when he wrote to the the church at Thessalonica. He said, but we were, listen to the way he describes this, the simile here, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I'm struck by that phrase that's in the middle of that passage, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, that we we were willing to stand at a pulpit and share the gospel, but we wanted to get down from the pulpit and get into your life. We, we wanted to move into a relationship, like a mother, like a father. Years ago, I was sitting in a gathering of pastors from all over the country, and the man who was speaking, I don't even remember who it was, but he directed this question to all of us, to each of us, pastors. Which do you love more, he asked. Preaching and teaching, or those to whom you preach and teach? In other words, do you do what you do in ministry simply because you love doing it? Or do you do what you do because you love the people for whom you do it? It's an essential question, and and I think once you've heard it, if you take it to heart, it's an unavoidable question. I've never forgotten it. It has haunted me all these years. Do I just love being a pastor, or do I love people? Do I love serving in a church, or do I love the people in that church? Let me turn the question your direction for just a moment. Those of you who teach children, what's your motivation? Do you simply love teaching, or do you love the children you teach? Maybe you don't love either, I don't know. But I do know this, that the posture of your heart toward them will determine the attitude and the intensity with which you fulfill that role. If you love them, one thing I know is true, that you will spend time during the week with them on your heart and mind. You'll spend time during the week praying for them. You may spend time during the week writing notes to them and and entering into relationship with them. If you love them, you 
We'll spend time in preparation during the week rather than cramming and jamming on Saturday night or early Sunday morning and then coming in and plopping something in front of them that's, that's ill-thought and ill-prepared. You who teach and counsel youth, you love them? <clears throat> or do you just love being involved in youth ministry? Having spent a lot of time in youth ministry myself, I, I know that there are people who want to be in youth ministry simply because they want to relive their adolescence. They just didn't get enough the first time around. See, if you don't love teenagers, if you don't genuinely care for them, they'll sniff that out in a heartbeat. You who lead life groups or Bible studies or teach adult Sunday school classes, do you love the adults you teach and lead? Or do you love to hear yourself talk? Does your relational engagement with them end at the close of class? Or would you say like Paul, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel but also our own lives because you are so dear to us. You who play instruments or sing in the band, is your heart really to lead God's people into his presence, into life-changing encounters with him? Or, or do you just love to play music or hear yourself sing? See, here's the reality that the spiritual leadership, spiritual influence is not for cowards and it's not for lightweights. It's not for the casually interested. It's hard work. Spiritual leadership can be lonely. It can be terribly discouraging. But if you are allowing God to fulfill your, to fill your heart with, with genuine love for those whom you lead, for those whom you influence, you will be able to say with Paul, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And there's no greater expression of the love, the heart of a spiritual leader than that. I will most gladly spend and be spent. Leave it all on the field for your souls. See, because Paul loved these Roman believers, his heart's desire was, was to give them some spiritual gift, he said, to strengthen them and and don't get confused here. He's not talking about spiritual gifts in the sense that he talks about it in chapter 12 of this letter or in, in chapters 12 and 14 of 1 Corinthians. He's not talking about spiritual enablements for ministry and mission. Only the Holy Spirit can give that. Paul's talking instead in a broader sense of something he wants to bring them. Again, by the Holy Spirit, of course, but whether it's by preaching or teaching or exhorting or comforting or praying or counseling, he wanted to bring them something that would result in their spiritual benefit, that, that would fortify them or motivate them or encourage them spiritually. He wanted to have a part in seeing them grow up to the fullness of real maturity in Christ. That's the passion of a spiritual leader. But notice with me also that a spiritual leader possesses the humility to receive as well as to give. 
going back to our text in verses 9b through 12, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Listen now, that is that we may be mutually encouraged, mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Years ago, a close friend of mine, Jill Nicholson, said to me, Jim, you need to learn to be a gracious receiver as well as a gracious giver. I don't remember the circumstance, but I remember Jill. (laughs) And Jill was one of those people in my life, and I'm sure you have them in your life too, that can, can look into your eyes and just look right down into your soul. It's kind of those penetrating eyes. I'm pretty sure that she was reacting to something about my pride, my arrogance, that that wanted to maintain control in a relationship, maintain superiority by only giving and never receiving. Commenting on this passage in Romans some 500 years ago, reformer John Calvin wrote regarding Paul, note how modestly he expresses what he feels by not refusing to seek strengthening from inexperienced beginners. He means what he says, too, for there is none so void of gifts in the church of Christ who cannot, in some measure, contribute to our spiritual progress. There's nobody that you and I can't learn from. Ill will and pride, however, prevent our deriving such benefit from one another. The Apostle Peter instructed the elders in the church, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, not lording it over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. See, a genuine leader never possesses, never projects an attitude of spiritual superiority, never cultivates a sense in others that he or she is above receiving essential nourishment and encouragement from them. Verse 13, Paul goes on, he says, I have often intended to come to you. I've often intended to come to you. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. The word translated harvest here in the ESV is is literally fruit, that I may reap some fruit among you. A spiritual leader has a heart for the harvest, a heart for the Harvest. The biblical writers employed this term fruit in three different ways. First of all, as attitudes, uh, as a metaphor for the attitudes that, that characterize the believer who's led by the Spirit of God. For example, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, Paul wrote about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Attitudes of the heart that are a result of the Spirit of God in us, the fruit of the Spirit. 
Biblical writers also employed this term fruit to, to describe action of living out a, a lifestyle of obedience, of praising God, of giving financially to advance the kingdom of God, of, of being obedient in our lives. But third, they wrote of fruit as addition, addition to the church, addition to the kingdom of God. And this, I think, is what Paul is talking about here. Paul was a, an evangelist at heart, and he, his, his great longing was to see men and women, boys and girls, find and follow Jesus Christ, put their faith in him, grow up to maturity in him, follow him with their whole hearts for the whole of their lives. The heart of a spiritual leader is always, always, always for the harvest. For over 11 years now, I have driven through the streets and the neighborhoods of Lacey and, and prayed a simple prayer that sounds like this, Lord, would you please give us a harvest from these neighborhoods? Now, I don't know how he, he does that. I'm not going to dictate that to God, but simply saying, Lord, would you give us a harvest, a harvest of souls from these neighborhoods, and he has, but there's more. And, and, and God has a lot more for us to do here, a lot more harvesting. And so will you join me in praying that God increases the harvest in all the weeks and all the months and all the years to come so that we can make Lacey a hard place to go to hell from? You hear me? Notice also that, that Paul makes this point here that a spiritual leader elicits spiritual opposition. A spiritual leader elicits spiritual opposition. In verse 13, he he makes this interesting statement, I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. Now, I'm not going to presume to know exactly what Paul meant here when he said I've been prevented or, or what it was that prevented him. We don't know exactly what it was. Um, It may have been God himself, perhaps in God's sovereign purpose, God's sovereign timing, he just held Paul back. He said, said, Paul, it's not just not time yet. On the other hand, it may have been merely circumstantial. Other priorities, other people, other concerns needed to be addressed first. Both of those are possible explanations. But here's something I know, that if you are a spiritual leader, not just a natural leader, not just a human leader, but if you are a leader who is exercising influence on a spiritual level, you will elicit spiritual opposition. It will come your way. When the Spirit of God calls you, when he invests you with spiritual leadership and, and you respond to that call, the enemy of your soul will have you immediately in his crosshairs. You will be a target of spiritual resistance. You will be a target of spiritual opposition. And there will be times in your ministry where you, where you will feel like that dream that you have sometimes where you're trying to run and you're stuck in the mud. And you just feel like there's something I can't see here. There's something that that is impeding my progress. There's something standing in the way, and it's invisible, but it's real. Never lose sight of that truth that the, the Satan 
wants to impede, he wants to frustrate, he wants to stymie, he wants to discourage the work of the Holy Spirit in you and through you. He wants to seduce you away in a thousand different ways from fulfilling your calling. And that's another reason that you and I must must never give in but commit ourselves to a lifestyle of encouraging one another to endure in faithfulness and obedience to God's calling. That's why Paul wrote in another another place, let's consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, each day that passes, we're one day closer to the coming of Christ. We have one day less to fulfill the ministry and the mission that God has given to us while we are here. And that's the reason, that's among the reasons that you need to be in a small group, whether it's one of our life groups or I don't care what, but, but here's the dynamic that needs to happen in a group that you are a part of, that you are able to build the level of trust in that group where you are able to say to the men and or women in the group, here's where I really am. Here's where I really am in my spiritual life. Here's where I really am in my personal life. Here's where I really am in my marriage and in my parenting and in my work. Here's where I live. And would you please look into my life and would you please pray for me and encourage me to maintain obedience, to endure in faithfulness to Jesus because I'm encountering spiritual opposition. Finally, Paul writes in verses 14 and 15, I am under obligation. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. What's Paul saying? That phrase, I am under obligation, is better translated, I am indebted, or I am a debtor. And there are two possible ways to go into debt. Aren't there? I mean, the one is that, that you simply borrow from someone. You borrow money, for example. The second is to be given money for someone by a third party. For example, if I were to borrow $1,000 from you, I, I would be in your debt until I paid that back. Equally, if a, a friend of yours was to say, man, I love Greg Brower so much, Here's a thousand dollars. I'm giving it to you, Jim, and I want you to pass it on to Greg. In that case, I would be in debt to the friend as well as to Greg for a thousand dollars. And it's in this second sense, I think, that Paul is saying, I am in debt, and I am therefore obligated. He, he owes the Roman Christians nothing in a sense that he must repay them, but Jesus Christ has entrusted Paul with the gospel for the Gentiles, and so Paul owes the Gentiles the gospel. He owes God his obedience, and he owes the Gentiles the gospel. A spiritual leader pays it forward. For that reason, Paul says, it's, it's for this reason that Paul says, I am eager, so I am eager to preach the gospel 
to you also who are in Rome. Paul expressed both his obligation and his eagerness when, when he wrote to the Corinthians with these words. He says, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. In other words, I am in debt to God. The necessity is laid upon me. And so woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But even if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Paul says, look, I, I long to do this. I, I, I love to preach the gospel. I, I love you. Woe to me, though, if I don't preach it, whether I feel like it or not, because I've been given a stewardship. Paul's going to refer to this sense of stewardship in a number of ways, on a number of occasions, as we work our way through this letter to the Roman Christians. Jesus Christ made Paul a debtor by committing the gospel to his trust. His obligation was to the learned and the unlearned. That's what's wrapped up in the Greek and the barbarian there. The sophisticated and the simple, the wise and the foolish, without distinction. Why? Because the gospel is the great equalizer. Every human being is equally lost without it and equally saved by it. And in the same way, you and I, in the very same way Paul was under obligation, you and I are under obligation. Everything God has invested in us, his word, the gospel, our salvation, the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, our spiritual giftedness, our talents, our material resources, the mentoring and the instruction and the encouragement that has come to us through the church, through other believers. Even the legacy of those who have gone before us and on whose shoulders we stand spiritually, all of that has put us under obligation. This weekend, I was reminded of my obligation. Our speaker, Jan Hedinga, has been a mentor of mine and in so many ways has, has shaped me in my adult life as a pastor and as a leader, as a person. And I, as I sat there and I reflected on what God had done just through that man in my life, let alone hundreds of others, I was reminded of my obligation to pay it forward. Because we are under obligation, we have no liberty to keep any of what God has entrusted to us to ourselves. We are under obligation to make the good news known to our children, to our grandchildren, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to the world, to help people find and follow the Jesus who has saved us by his grace. So let me ask you as we close, are you growing up into maturity? Are you? I want to say something very honest here. If you're not growing spiritually, 
It's not the fault of LifePoint Church. There is every opportunity in this church to grow. I, again, I'm just being really honest here, I, I labor every week to bring you the Word of God with clarity. With all the clarity I can muster, there are men and women in this church who have invested themselves to teach your children, to teach your teenagers, to teach you. We have adult classes that are poorly attended. I don't know why. It concerns me because of what it says about us as a church that we're hungry for the Word of God. Honestly. Are you growing up? Are you taking responsibility for your own nourishment, for your own growth? Are you putting into practice what you are hearing? Are you just a spectator? Are you, is, are you just an audience rather than a community, rather than a church? Are you growing up? Are you paying it forward? Are you invested in some way in the spiritual flourishing of others? There's a lot of work to do in official roles here in this church. You all know that. We say that all the time. We, we're desperate always for teachers of children. We're, we need people that will invest in the lives of teenagers, making disciples of teenagers. We, we're always looking for life group leaders. We're, all, we're always looking for people to do lots of things. And that's all important, but that's not just what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about you allowing God cooperating with God so that you grow up and you have something to offer someone else. That, that, that there's an outflow of the Spirit of God from your life that results in spiritual influence. It may not be official in any way. It may simply be relational. But God is growing you and God is using you. Are you invested in the spiritual growth of others? Do you love them? Do you love them? At the root of the gospel is love. And maybe, maybe, our failure to minister is simply, at its root, a failure to love. Are you praying consistently for those around you and those whom God has called you to serve? Is your heart set on the harvest? Does it break your heart that people are going to hell from Lacey, from Olympia, from Tumwater, from anywhere on the face of the earth? Does that break your heart? Have you understood your obligation to God, your stewardship? Are you paying it forward? The Son of God has saved you. The Spirit of God indwells you. He has gifted and empowered you. The kingdom of God needs you. The advancement of the gospel depends on you. The church is waiting for you. So what are you waiting for?
LifePoint Church will never fulfill its calling in this community unless you, who have been gifted and called to spiritual leadership, spiritual influence, step up and pay it forward. Again, I'm just being as honest as I can be. Because LifePoint Church is not the pastors and the elders and the organization. LifePoint Church is us. And and God never designed the church to be just a few people sweating on the field while a thousand watch them play. And if we're going to fulfill our calling, and then the identity that God has desired for us in this community is going to be because each of us takes seriously our calling and our stewardship and pays it forward. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask something of you, and and I want you to know right now that I'm not asking you to do something theatrical, and I'm not trying to be theatrical or dramatic. But I'm going to pray, and and I'm going to close my eyes, and I'm going to ask you to close your eyes as I pray. And then I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed. And if you are willing to simply say, God, I don't understand all of what this means, but I am willing to grow up, and I am willing to become spiritually influential in the lives of others, if you're willing to make that commitment today, if you're willing to lock arms with those around you, then I'm going to ask you as I'm praying and as you keep your eyes closed so you're not looking around to see what somebody else is doing, I'm going to ask you to stand up while I'm praying. And by that, you will say to me and you'll say to this church, I'm willing to fulfill my obligation before God to pay it forward. Let's pray. Lord, it's surprising to me that you would choose the likes of me to do any of this. Lord, I know my own sin, and I know my own failure, and I know my own foibles and weakness. I know my own waywardness. And yet, your word says that you choose to take up residence in broken vessels, cracked pots, That's a surpassing greatness of the power that we experience and we exercise is not from ourselves, but from you, and that we would know that. And so, Lord, thank you that you've chosen to use us, that you've chosen to indwell us, to empower us. Thank you that you considered us worthy of the blood of Jesus Christ. That you loved us enough to forgive our sins and And that somehow in your eternal, infinite, sovereign wisdom and grace, you've allowed us to participate in the work of your kingdom. And Lord, this morning we want to remember those who have invested in us. We want to remember and honor their legacy. We want to honor their memory by living lives that reflect 
what their intent was as they invested in us. We want to live lives consistent with the truth of your word, and we want to live lives that reflect the presence of your Holy Spirit in us, the fact that you have invested us with gifts and skills that you intend for us to use, and you have placed people in our lives that you intend us to influence. How can it be, Lord, that you chose us, and yet you have? And so, Lord, uh, my eyes are still closed, and I, I don't know who's standing right now, but I thank you for them. Not standing because they're pretending something or because of peer pressure, but because before you, in the honesty of their hearts, they're willing to say, Lord, I, I don't understand all of what you're asking of me, but I am willing because of Christ. of all that has indebted me. And Lord, I don't want to miss being part of what you're trying to do through me and through others in the world. I don't want to miss my moment. I don't want to look back at the end of my life and say, I wish I had. So Lord, would you meet us and would you call us forward and would you show us would you make us willing to do things that we've been resistant to that we would repent of our stubbornness our stick in the mud attitude Lord let us be moved let us be shaped let us be redirected let us join you in the adventure of change and transformation in our lives and through our lives. We pray it in the name of your Son, Christ, and we claim it by the power of your Holy Spirit. 